Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. An uncertain economy meets the promise of a vaccine, and markets pretty much take the over on that bet. Welcome to Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Twelve years ago, President Obama came to office with a struggling economy and fought to get a stimulus package despite the political hurdles. Austin Goolsby was a key Obama economic advisor and saw from the inside what it took to get that done. He's now a professor of economics at Chicago's Booth School. It, it, there are some parallels in what we're seeing right now with the struggling economy, the need for stimulus everybody seems to agree on, some political difficulty in getting it done. How can? What advice would you give to the incoming administration about how to do that and how to do it effectively? Well, I do think there are some parallels. If only Mitch McConnell was a thorn in the side of both of those. Uh, and I think the the thought in 2009, if you remember, was let's do some. And if things remain bad, we'll just do more. But Mitch McConnell saw to it that that there would not be more. So I think if you look at the incoming Biden administration, they're probably going to put some significant focus on try to get as much direct relief as you can as early as you can because the economy needs it. Now, one difference is in 2009, that was traditional stimulus. The, U, the U.S. government's going to spend money, try to get growth jump started. This is different. I mean, this is a temporary wave that's spread over us and we basically need to figure out a way to hold our breath for six or eight months until the vaccine can be widely available and we can go back to doing what we were doing before. So we're trying, our goal is to try to prevent permanent damage, which is a little different from stimulus. 
So but as, I hope that they can agree to do something. I mean, we need the money right now. Well, and that goes to the question that's been pending, frankly, since July 31, when we when the, the supplementary uh, unemployment benefits went away. The question is, do you hold out for the full loaf or take half a loaf? Thus far, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, she's come down off of her $3.3 trillion, but still, she's insisted on a lot. Would you advise the incoming president to say, take what you can get during this lame duck session? <laughs> I guess I disagree a little bit with the premise of that question. We need as much as we can get as soon as we can get it. My perception of what's happening is not that the Democrats are holding out. It's that once again, like in 2009, Mitch McConnell has decided that a deal is not favorable to him before these uh, Georgia runoff elections. And so it's not primarily a dispute about the size of the rescue. It's about one side not wanting there to be uh, a bill at all. So I think if Mnuchin and Pelosi were the only two deciders, they would have been able to reach an agreement. I mean, they were close uh, on on numbers and how long it would last. I just think the the politics of this whole thing is is quite complicated in the lame duck. Well, that, that's sobering because, as you suggest, if it's a question of not uh, giving the other side credit for something before those runoff elections, that suggests we're not going to have anything until into the new year. And, and, I've, and I'm quite afraid of that uh, because, as you say, look, the unemployment money ran out, the CARES Act money through the PPP program that was going to help give a lifeline to small business, that money's run out. And the Treasury you saw last week said they're going to withdraw the money for the Fed Main Street lending facility. So that money's not going to be there. So I think this issue that we are we are inches away from having permanent damage that we did not have to have, um, th- that that I think everybody should find sobering. So, Austin, talk about that permanent damage, as you as you put it, because there's a great deal of hope that a vaccine is coming. It's not here yet. It'll probably be at least into the middle of next year before it really is widely disseminated. And so we need a bridge to get there. What kind of damage can happen in the meantime? Because some people might say, well, let's just wait. We'll get the vaccine. We'll be OK in the long run. Yeah, but we need the bridge, like you said. And the, the alternative is falling down in the water and and. There are literally millions of businesses around the country that I would say they're going to go bankrupt. But as as you know, something like 90 percent of business closures never even they can't afford to go through bankruptcy. They just shut the doors and they're never heard from again. And that's a space that we absolutely don't want to have to go down. But right now we're on path to two in all the states and pretty much all the major cities of the country. They're having revenue shortages like they've never seen with expenses that are up dramatically because of the pandemic. And they're going to have to start laying off policemen, firefighters, teachers, and a a whole bunch of state services that we kind of need at a moment like this. So I think those are the two big speed bumps uh, that I fear. And, And then the third is, underlying this whole thing, the virus is the boss. And if you cannot get control of the spread of this virus until the middle of next year, when the vaccine comes, there's going to be thousands, there will be thousands of people who die unnecessarily. There will be tens of thousands of people 
who are hospitalized or suffer permanent health damage permanently, unnecessarily. So I, I really hope that Congress does as big a package of relief as they can as rapidly as possible so we don't get people evicted from their homes. I mean, millions of people are going to get evicted. That was Austin Goolsby, professor of economics at Chicago's Booth School. Coming up, OPEC Plus decides to ease off the brakes, but very gradually. We talk with Daniel Jurgen about what difference it will really make. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We think that energy prices are at equilibrium somewhere in the high teens, low 20s. I also think it's a little bit of a hedge. We have seen a very sharp reduction in energy prices. By the way, that is stimulative to the economy, so thank you for that. That was Abby Joseph Cohen of Goldman Sachs on Wall Street Week back in 2002. 18 years later, the price of oil is double what it was back then, and we don't look at low oil prices so much for how they can stimulate the economy as for what they may say about the strength of global demand, particularly in the time of the pandemic. Daniel Jurgen of IHS Market wrote the book on oil, and we asked him whether this week's latest OPEC Plus agreement to gradually ease production curbs is what the market needs. What it does is basically says that the deal is not going to break up when you have 23 nations that come together and uh, in the, looking in an abyss at negative oil prices, they make a deal everybody sticks together. As prices start going up, people start looking at their own interests. Saudi Arabia has one view, Russia another view, uh, the UAE another view. But I think that uh, they could not afford to not have a deal. And uh, there are a lot of uh, digital bilaterals that had to happen to make this happen. But this kind of is a, is a gradual one that does ultimately get to what they'd agreed to in terms of bringing production back. But it just shows you, David, how hard it is to bring seven and a half million barrels of oil uh, over a year back into the market. Exactly. Particularly given this market. Just one part of, forgive the expression, criminalology here. I'm hearing some people say it was important that Russia was presiding. They were chairing the meeting rather than Saudi Arabia. Do you put any stock in that? I think so. I think um, uh, Minister Novak was one of the uh, uh, architects of the whole deal, the Russian and um, the Saudi uh, co-chair uh, the petroleum minister, uh, Abdulaziz bin Salman, decided he didn't want to be in the chair. And so the figure of stability was uh, as somebody who's not part of OPEC, but part of the non-OPEC group. So it sends a message about the Russians' focus on stability. 
so they had to delay the meeting because there was enough contention. They couldn't really get to an agreement quite. And, and the contention, as I understand it, came from a quarter that I didn't appreciate, which is Saudi Arabia and UAE. Usually I think of it as Saudi Arabia and Russia. What was the bone of contention between Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates? Yeah. Yeah, the, actually, Saudi Arabia and Russia has been the basis of this whole agreement from the beginning. Uh, the UAE has said that they want to increase production. They didn't like the fact that other countries were cheating. Uh, they seem to uh, want to, they've raised questions about what's the framework here. I think they want to monetize their oil. So there was a degree of uh, tension between uh, those two countries in terms of their point of view, which normally they're pretty much in lockstep. So that's an example of the divergence of interests that uh, uh, exist, particularly as prices start going up again in anticipation of vaccine. Well, that, that's key, it seems to be, as you say, the prices started going up again, because I took a look at oil over a period of time over the course of the year, and it has been moving its way back up. Is that really uh, triggering the dispute right now about whether to increase production? Yes, because I, I think when prices start going up, the divergence of interests, I mean, the oil price has basically been stuck in what I call the, uh, the virus alley, and like a lot of other parts of the economy, and in terms of getting out, it's been torn between, on the one hand, now vaccine optimism, and the other hand, virus pessimism, uh, but uh, as it's now basically looking towards uh, the springtime, when it's possible that a lot of people in countries where you have had economic shutdown, like the United States or Europe, will be back in motor cars and demand will be going up again. Dan, we spend almost every day looking at the equity markets, at least here in the United States, and how they've been going up. And it's generally thought that's because we are anticipating a vaccine sometime at least toward the middle of next year. Does the oil market work that way? I mean, are oil prices being affected already by the prospect of a widely distributed vaccine by the middle of 2021? Uh, absolutely. It's signaling it and that, uh, that uh, that's when you'll start to see demand going up. Of course, there's some things hanging out there. For instance, if the Biden administration starts to move to try and reopen the door with Iran, that could mean a lot of Iranian oil coming back into the market. So there's a whole geopolitical drama that's happening at the same time. But it's certainly uh, expectations of a vaccine and kind of confidence and hope beyond what looks like an, a very difficult 12 weeks that we have ahead from a health point of view. At the same time, we see China coming back faster, I think it's fair to say, than the United States and Europe. Is that helping drive the price of oil in and of itself right now? Give us a sense of what the China resurgence is doing. Yeah, it's uh, sent a, a message that was not expected because uh, people thought, you know, demand would be weak. Chinese oil demand now is higher than it was at this time last year. So it, it, I think that is figuring in that people see that you get recovery and with recovery comes increased demand. And, uh, you know, this is a market that has been very hit, hard hit by the reduction in demand because of the freezing up of activity. And there seems to be indication that demand is, is really back uh, in India as well. And that's another signal that the market's looking at. Uh, moving on to the supply side, uh, you mentioned the possibility of Iran coming back online if, in fact, a Biden administration comes to terms with them. Libya already, as I understand it, is producing again more than it was before. Uh, how much oil is sitting out there that could come back in on the production side? Well, if you add what has uh, been out because of the uh, OPEC Plus deal, uh, at this point, that's 7.5 million barrels. Then you have another, that all won't come back at once. They've tried to have a structure for that. But you could have 3 million barrels a day of Iranian oil coming back and possibly something with Venezuela too. So that is uh, hanging out there. And it looks like the Trump administration is doing everything it can to put together uh, an anti, uh, stronger anti-Iranian coalition 
to make things more difficult for uh, a Biden administration. Uh, what is the effect at this point of U.S. shale? I mean, it's been a huge effect. You you have it in the, the new map, your new book, uh, about the effect of U.S. shale. How is that affecting the oil market right now? Well, shale has uh, come down a lot. Uh, we reached an incredible high point of 13 million barrels a day in February, ahead of Saudi Arabia, ahead of Russia. We're still ahead of Saudi Arabia and Russia because of their cutbacks. But it's down about 2 million barrels a day, and I don't think we'll see a recovery until the middle of next year, until you start to see uh, demand going up and uh, prices getting really getting out of uh, virus alley. Dan, as you suggest, the big issue, I think it's for the world, but certainly for the oil industry, is what happens with the vaccine and the vaccine coming back on. We also have a change in administrations coming up here in the United States, and we have what looks to be a, quite a different approach to energy coming in from a President Biden when he takes office January 20. How big a factor is that likely to be? Well, well, I think in a way, I, the way I was listening to your previous interview and thinking that really the presidential election really isn't over until uh, January 5th, and we know the outcome of Georgia, because that will affect what the Biden administration can and can't do with, on climate. But it is said that climate is one of its four priorities. John Kerry has been appointed as climate uh, envoy. Every cabinet secretary will have a climate objective. So, And the United States will re-engage with the global climate Paris consensus. So it will be a pretty big change, I think. Uh, but he's also made clear that there's no ban on fracking, that there'll be more regulation. That was Daniel Jurgen, author of The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. Coming up, we're down to the wire on Brexit. Bloomberg's senior executive editor for economics, Stephanie Flanders, on what's at stake. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Less than a month to go until the United Kingdom leaves the European Union with or without a deal. After years of back and forth, it's hard to see how the parties have truly narrowed their differences over harmonizing regulations, over the Irish border, or over those fish. As Wall Street Week contributor and Bloomberg senior executive editor for economics, Stephanie Flanders says, it's time to make some decisions. Well, and of course, it's those kind of phrases that have been used over the last few weeks, as we've had increasingly felt that we were just on the edge of an agreement. Uh, and that was true last week. And we know that it was delayed. Any any fur final furlong uh, was was delayed by the fact that one of the negotiators actually uh, was exposed to COVID and everyone had to go into uh, quarantine for, for some period of time. But uh, every day now, uh, we talk to our reporters uh, and the word on the street, uh, we are hearing that it's about to come a deal. I have to say the mood music the last few days has actually been less positive. And I think that's partly the feeling that, hang on a minute, we thought we knew what needed to happen. You mentioned those three deals. You know, the general perception is that on those three sticking points, uh, it's uh, Britain, uh, probably Boris Johnson himself, who will need to give a little bit on this language around a level playing field where Britain sort of promises that it's not going to try and use its new freedom to get an enormous competitive advantage against uh, Europe in return for the Europeans then asking for what the British would say was a more reasonable amount of access to British waters. It's amazing how important this 0.1% of the economy, yeah. the fishing 
uh, has become in this negotiation. And of course, many in the financial sector, uh, the city is so important, uh, would say, hang on a minute, we were sold down the river years ago and you're still, uh, the fish, fishermen are still in there battling away for their rights. It does seem like a very topsy-turvy negotiation. Yeah, as we would say, them's politics is a practical matter. But we have the British on the one side, and, and I think it's fair to say the, the British position has not always been perfectly consistent. But on the other hand, are we having dissension over on the European side? Because now there are reports that maybe they don't think Michel Barnier is really cluing them in on what the terms are. There was even a Bloomberg report saying that, in fact, France might be threatening to veto whatever Mr. Barnier negotiates. You know, the French have always had a very, have been the sort of uh, the muscular side of the negotiations and certainly have had more muscular uh, rhetoric, uh, feisty rhetoric throughout this process. We know they've quite actively talked about uh, taking advantages for Paris's financial sector for this, for sure, um, but also about uh, Britain be, you know, being absolutely sure that Britain doesn't get a deal that any other country might look at and say, oh, I'd like, I want one like that. Um, whether that's sort of classic, uh, not to play to too many stereotypes, but is it the sort of, you know, Gallic uh, desire to sound, to sound macho or whether there's something more fundamental there, a real disagreement, uh, I'm not so sure. I and mean, what has been really striking throughout, you pointed to the inconsistencies on the British side, in general, the Europeans, this is a lot of countries with a lot of different interests in this negotiation, have been remarkably of one voice throughout. And I suspect that will continue, even if you get a little muttering around the edges. What is the real deadline? I mean, there were so many deadlines. Now I'm hearing like December 18, because they do have to get ratification, right? After they get a deal done. Yeah, and it's been interesting because the, the British set a deadline of October, middle of October, a while ago. So that was the sort of drop dead date. Um, the Europeans were always a bit sort of poo-pooed that. Then it went through November. I interviewed the Irish Prime Minister uh, a few weeks ago for the Bloomberg New Economy Forum. He thought the deadline could slip into the middle of December. Now they are talking about a bit later. I think the idea is once you get into that kind of territory, everything would be provisional. You wouldn't be able to get ratification in the European Parliament. And in a sense, you'd be prolonging the agony because you would you would still be having to go back and finalise this deal that you did already in the final hour. So I, I think people are hoping that we won't be pushing those further deadlines, um, not least because the, the new vaccine that Britain has just uh, confirmed, has to. we haven't got it from Belgium yet, and we certainly don't want to get shipments to be interfered with uh, come January. So we're all going to need to be watching this very, very closely over the coming days and weeks. By the way, if they don't get a deal done by, Jan by December 31, can they just keep negotiating into the new year? I understand WTO restrictions will come into effect, but why couldn't they deal do a deal on January 15 or January 30? You know, we've we, we found that before that these things can be can be more flexible. I think that the, the, real, the problem is that the potential of extending the transition period was absolutely ruled out after the summer. Um, there was a deadline, I think it was in August, uh, where the British had to apply for an extension. And they, they said, despite COVID, despite everything else, the government was adamant it wouldn't have an extension. So legally, you're right that the change has to happen on January 1st. Whether you'd have enough goodwill, enough desire to negotiate with the same kind of pace and energy when you've already crashed through that crucial legal deadline, I'm not so sure. But yeah, technically, they could carry on talking. That was Stephanie Flanders, Bloomberg's Senior Executive Editor for Economics. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account 
While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Every week we wrap things up with our special contributor, Larry Summers, Harvard. So, Larry, welcome. I must say this week it strikes me, it strikes me that the big developments were on the fiscal side rather than the monetary side. We did hear from Jay Powell who said there was some uncertainty about the economy. But it was really apparent progress toward a compromise on some fiscal stimulus around that $908 billion proposal from some Democrats and some Republicans in the Senate. Is it possible that, in fact, the Republicans have been right all along and that we shouldn't have done the $3.3 trillion last spring and it was right to wait because $908 billion may be enough? I think the $3.3 trillion was always a negotiating position. We certainly should have done stimulus in the summer. We would have come into this difficult period with a stronger economy. We would have had even more rapid growth. We would have helped a lot of children who were going hungry. We would have prevented a lot of layoffs from state and local governments. But look, David, what's important now is to look forward, not backward. And you saw it in employment figures. You see it in what's happening with COVID. This economy needs relief and it needs it now. It needs it for hungry children. It needs it for people who are unemployed. It needs it to compensate those who are going to need to stay home if we're all going to stay uh, safe. It needs it to pay for much more testing than uh, we're having. It needs it to pay for more contract tracing than we're now uh, doing. It needs it to pay for the monitoring and assuring that people are wearing uh, masks. And it needs it to make sure that we deliver those vaccines every bit as rapidly as we conceivably can. This cannot possibly be a moment for uh, sitting still. It would be the highest irresponsibility if Washington was not able to find uh, a compromise. That means cutting out peripheral issues that may be very important economic issues but are not central to the stimulus challenge. And it means getting with the program and recognizing that America needs help. I hope it will happen in the next uh, several weeks. It looks more likely than it did, but there are no certainties. And it is a real test of goodwill and the capacity of Washington to function. Larry, one of the things we like to do here on Wall Street is look at the week, but also look beyond the week to larger patterns here. And when anybody mentions a paradigm shift for me, it certainly gets my attention. I read that book a long time ago about paradigm shifts. And there's suggestion there may have been a paradigm shift when it comes to fiscal stimulus. It comes from Olivia Blanchard referring to you, saying that there, there might be a paradigm shift. The large agreement between Larry Summers, Jason Furman, Ben Bernanke, Ken Rogoff, and him. Tell us about that paradigm shift. I think the paradigm shift is one I've talked about on your show before, uh, David. Uh, 
For 40 years since the inflation of the 70s, the preoccupation of macroeconomic policy has been with monetary discipline to avoid inflation and fiscal discipline to prevent crowding out. Now, when we've got zero interest rates and zero interest rates projected for a very long, uh, very low interest rates projected for a very, very long time, we're in a different paradigm. We're in a paradigm where the challenge is absorbing all the savings that an unequal and uncertain private sector uh, generates. And that means we're going to have to think about fiscal policy, not just as a countercyclical tool, but as a chronic uh, instrument that we're going to need to use to maintain demand. If we don't have fiscal policy, we are going to have pathologically low interest rates. We are going to have, with those pathologically interest rates, savers who don't have a chance to make it for their retirement, exploding asset prices and potential financial instability, rising uh, inequality, and economies that aren't going to reach their full potential. So the right way is to provide more stimulus to the economy. And we probably can't provide it with monetary policy. And even if we could, the side effects would be catastrophic in terms of financial instability. So we need to think about fiscal policy as a permanent tool of maintaining demand management. That is a very different view than the one we've had. It may not. It may well not be the right view forever, but it's the right view for coming decades. So, so apply that approach to fiscal policy, which would be a paradigm shift, as you say, to what we're facing right now. What Roger Altman referred to as a split-screen economy, where we're looking at three, four months of really tough times, perhaps with a snapback if a vaccine is widely distributed toward the, the middle to the end of next year. Can we have one fiscal policy that handles both of those very different conditions? I think so, because even with the snapback, even with a very good period of growth, we're still going to be short in terms of total number of jobs of where we thought we were. We're going to be short in terms of output of where we thought uh, we would uh, be. And we are going to need to run deficits of a kind larger than people used to think were appropriate. Um, and the truth is it's going to be okay because we're going to be able to run uh, those deficits given how much savings there is to absorb them and given how little pressure there is uh, coming from uh, credit markets. So I don't think this is an alarming prospect. In many ways, low costs to borrow for public investment are a boon, are a good thing. Just like businesses regard low borrowing costs as a good thing, and all of us as homeowners regard the ability to refinance our mortgages, the ability to get um, a larger home or a second home at a lower carrying cost because of low interest rates, we regard those as positive uh, things. And the same thing is operative in terms of public investment. So I don't think of this as necessarily a bad uh, thing. Low interest rates are an opportunity to do all kinds of things we probably should have done a long time ago, whether it's green investment or investing uh, in our children or fixing our infrastructure. I've used this example before. When I started flying from Harvard to Washington to give advice, it took an hour and a quarter. <laughs> now it takes over an hour and a half and it hasn't gotten any further. 
and airplane technology hasn't gotten worse. What's gotten worse is our air traffic control system's ability to manage all the traffic. That's got to not make any sense. That is one of many, many examples of where we need to strengthen our country's infrastructure. Another example is our kids who are uh, not able to go to school and in so many cases don't really have decent access to education because they lack the broadband access that is kind of part of being part of the economy in the same way that electrification was a necessity to be part of the economy a century ago. Okay, so Larry, just in a little over a minute left here, I want to do a couple of quick summer says that we'd love to do. Number one, when are we going to have a vaccine which is so widely distributed it affects 70% of the American population? When will that happen? Uh, June 1st. <laughs> that's, that's pretty bullish. But is that the second inoculation or just the first? Second, inocu- second inoculations for enough of the population that COVID will be down 85% from current levels by June 1st. Uh, is my prediction. I mean, there are people who are saying we're going to get a third of the way by February. And if we come close to that, we'll get the rest of the way for sure by June. Well, I, for one, would take that deal without a question. I'm an optimist. On this. Well, I, I like your optimism. That's terrific, Larry. You've been warning us about COVID-19. It's good if there's a way out of this. Uh, second one, uh, when are we going to see the 10-year yield up about 1.5%? We really saw it move up significantly this week. I think that's going to be until next year. I don't think the Fed's going to want to see that uh, happen. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure to keep rates, uh, keep rates low, to maintain financial stability, and make sure that we're getting all the stimulus to investment uh, that we can. February 1st, uh, 2022. Oh, 2022. By next year, you mean 2022, not 2021. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But does that mean the, infl- the reflation trade may be overbought and oversold? As a possibility, uh, yeah. no, there's a lot more room above 1% than there is <laughs> That's fair below where we, are, uh, where we are now. Fair enough. But uh, yep. I, I don't think it's uh, okay. a good short-run right. trade. Thank you so much to Special Wall Street Week contributor Larry Summers of Harvard. Always so great to have him with us. Finally, one more thought. The irresistible force of COVID meets the immovable object of American football. All of our lives have been upended in ways we could not have imagined just a year ago. But it's one thing to work from home or miss graduations and family gatherings or forego vacations. It's something else altogether to do without our football. So the NFL came up with a plan to push ahead, to test everyone daily, wear masks even in practices, limit all outside activities and punish anyone who doesn't comply. The only problem is football is played by people. And people don't always play by the rules, even in football. They had a good protocol, good strategy in place. But at the end of the day, they're working with people and human beings make errors. And so this week, we had the Pittsburgh Steelers play the Baltimore Ravens on a Wednesday afternoon, the third time the game had been rescheduled because a good part of the Ravens roster tested positive. And the Denver Broncos lost all of their quarterbacks, not to COVID, but to violating the rules on COVID leaving a wide receiver to run the team, one who hadn't taken a snap under center since his days in college at Wake Forest. It would be easy to say, just stop playing. But as Hall of Fame cornerback Daryl Green put it, it's not just about a game. For many of us, it's about who we are. How can we keep moving certain things that, that has to continue to move 
that makes us who we are as an American society. So whether you love football the way some of us do or not, we all share the need not to let a virus that's changed what we do change who we are. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.